Hey there, I'm Damien Blankensop, and this is the Quantified Body Podcast. Toxins impact negatively health, longevity, and performance in a variety of ways, as we've discussed recently in episodes with Jeffrey Bland and Ben Lynch. Today, we look at one of the most important toxins all of us are exposed to in today's environment, mercury. It's important because of its high level of toxicity and how commonly we are exposed to it and how many of us test at high levels for it. What's interesting is that we all have some levels of mercury in our bodies, but whether it affects us negatively and to what extent it does depends on a number of factors which we'll explore and clarify in this episode. Today's episode is really about quantifying your personal burden of mercury so you can understand if this is a problem for you or not, and then how to remove it safely and effectively. On a personal level, this is interesting for me because I tested with high levels of mercury three years ago and have been tracking my efforts to reduce this burden over time through various approaches and treatments. Just in the last month, I had hidden mercury amalgams discovered and removed by a biological dentist in Los Angeles. And I'm really looking forward to see what kind of impact that will have on my next test results, which I'm getting done with the labs from today's guest, by the way. I'm expecting a pretty good improvement because just based on improvements I've noticed in my health shortly after this removal, it feels anecdotal that it's had a positive impact for me. Now, this is a monster episode. It's our longest in length so far, and it's really packed with knowledge. It was, it was really a great episode, and it was a lot of fun for me, and there's really no fluff in it. It was recorded in two sessions. Uh, today's guest was really gracious to make time for another additional session because we ran over time. And we had so much to talk about. So behind this monster episode is Dr. Chris Shade. Chris is definitely the Mercury guy. He has pushed Mercury burden quantification beyond traditional tests to get a much clearer view of your Mercury burden. He's been researching and working in his one specialized area for over 15 years, which has led to the development of his unique patented analytical systems to quantify your burden and also some treatments for chronic Mercury contamination to detoxify you. I first contacted Chris to come on the show to talk about the quantification aspect, but as you'll see in the interview, we get into a wealth of information in general detoxification, covering things like binders, the glutathione system, and other essential parts of reducing your toxic burden in general. So if you're interested in detoxification, there's a lot of gold nuggets of information in this episode also. As usual, to get the show notes, the list of biomarkers we mentioned, apps and labs, and links to all of those and everything else, and the transcript of today's interview, as well as the MP3 download, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes, and just select the episode from the list. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here, Damien. Excellent. So let's dive straight into, you've made a really big name for yourself as a mercury kind of guy, <laughs> mercury and mercury as a toxin. Um, so let's just look at that straight away. Like, is mercury a toxin and what kind of health impacts does mercury have on us? 
Why is it bad? <laughs> That's the funny thing, you know, is mercury a toxin? Like, we haven't <laughs> known for 10,000 years that mercury is a serious toxin, yet for some reason the uh, narrative from the dental associations uh, continues that somehow it's not a toxin in your mouth. But it is most, most, most definitely a toxin, and it has a lot of effects through the whole body, and it's just basic way that it does things is by binding to these things called sulfhydro groups. They're special kinds of sulfur that really run your antioxidant system. They set the ground for the immune system working and they hold all of your good your good metals. So if you're using a zinc and an enzyme, these sulfhydro groups hold the zinc in place. But unfortunately, the mercury has an affinity for those same sulfhydro groups. And it's actually on the order of one to 10 billion times higher affinity for those groups than the zinc does. So it starts getting into all these enzymatic reactions. And it's important that we're not thinking that these are digestive enzymes. Everybody thinks that enzymes, oh yeah, digestive enzymes. Now, digestive enzymes make your stomach digest at a, you know, infinitely higher rates than just the acid in your stomach would do. But enzymes in your cells make reactions happen that aren't favorable to happen just in the milieu of the cell. So they're really responsible for the whole body working the way that it does. And mercury interferes in all that. And in a systemic level, it's interfering at a circulatory level. It's creating little inflammatory states in the circulatory system. It's creating porosity or leakiness in the circulatory system. It's creating porosity or leakiness in the brain. It's creating uh, problems in the kidneys, and that can go from adrenal fatigue to actual damage to your filtration mechanisms. In the brain, it's got a lot of problems that... Uh, really set you up for failure. Very specifically, it targets the glutamate receptors. So in your brain, you've got GABA and glutamate being the dominance of your neurotransmitters. And GABA is sort of your Zen neurotransmitter. It puts you into a parasympathetic or resting, digesting, repairing state. And uh, glutamate puts you into a sympathetic system uh, or a sympathetic tone to your autonomic nervous system where it's, uh, it's fight or flight, but it also does good things. It's, it creates memory. So you know to stay away from the tiger, but it puts you in this stressed state. And when the mercury gets in there, there's a hyperstimulation of the glutamate receptors. So you have an exaggeration of being in this sympathetic state. So you start to feel fight or flight all the time, and that creates anxiety. So anxiety is, is the dominant manifestation neurologically of that, but then that leads to fatigue and depression as it burns out the system. So yes, mercury does a lot to your body. Great, great. And I, I, like, I like the explanation you gave because we hear a lot about toxins today and I don't think anyone really knows what that means. We take something to our body and it hurts us somehow. But you know, you just described it in a pretty clear way that it basically gets stuck to bits of our body and changes what it does into something that it shouldn't be doing or it stops it from doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, and ideally what happens is a toxin gets in there, irritates some part of the system, and there's what's called a hormetic response. Hormesis is irritating the body and the body bounces back with its repair signal to get rid of that. So it will detoxify and then repair. But some of these toxins have 
a effect that is epigenetic or transgenerational, where they'll actually turn down your response system. And this is one of the biggest things where we, we need to look at mercury as a, what should I call it, a community toxin, as as something that it's doing to the whole gene pool. Because one of the things that we find in uh, in research done on animals is that if we expose an animal in utero to a lot of mercury, it's born and it may not have acute mercury toxicity, but what it does is create a diminishment of the glutathione system. And the glutathione system is one of the dominant ways that you detoxify and then repair. And so you're suddenly born not with acute mercury toxicity, but with a lifelong susceptibility to further toxic insults. And those toxic insults can be from mercury or other metals or all of the organic compounds, uh, persistent organic pollutants, uh, chlorinated, halogenated hydrocarbons like flame retardants. All of a sudden, you're a more susceptible organism. And somehow we get away as, say, industry gets away with saying, no, there's no problem with mercury because look, you don't have acute mercury toxicity. But I just made this generation of children more susceptible to the next rounds of things coming at them. And the way these toxins all add together and how some of them make you weaker towards other toxins is really what needs to be seen. And you and I were talking before the interview about me trying to get people away from thinking just about acute toxicity towards systemic ability to hold back this flood of toxins and really how the body's defense mechanisms get weaker under various scenarios, which then given a moderate burden with a system with integrity, there's no issue. But with a system that's lost integrity due to a number of factors, that person is now going to suffer what looks like acute toxicity at much lower levels. So we need to integrate these views of what toxicity and defense mean. Great. So, I mean, you touched on so many different <laughs> different angles there. Um, let's just nail the epigenetics quickly. So you're saying that there's not actually a transfer from, say, the mother to the child of mercury itself, but the actual bias of the methylation or acetylation has been biased when it's been transferred because it was already biased in the mother. So it's not necessarily, so it's not, you couldn't like detect the mercury in the child, for instance. That's what I'm kind of getting at. Exactly. You can right when they come out, but it goes away very quickly. I mean, all these people, I mean, I had been started thinking about this when I came onto the scene and all these people come up to me and they're like, I know I'm mercury toxic and they send in a test and there's nothing there. And then I went to interviewing them ahead of time. Well, do you have amalgams? No. Do you eat fish? No. It's from my mother. And so, you know, the scientist in me kind of was like, yeah, yeah, it's all from your mother, isn't it? You know, <laughs> this is an emotional problem, I think, until the data started coming out. And they would take like groups of rats and they'd expose one to mercury and the one group to mercury while the while the, the rat is pregnant with the with the pups, they're called, and the other no mercury. And then they track these and just a little they'd stop the exposure right when they're born. And after a couple of weeks, the mercury is all gone. But the epigenome is still there. The genome is biased towards having a lower expression of the very thing that it needs. And this bias continued for some time. In fact, what's supposed to happen is that they're born and they're born with a weak 
defense system because they don't want to reject the mother. And then it comes out and expresses itself over the couple of weeks after they're born. And because the detox and the immune system come up together and they're relying on each other. I mean, we never really understood that. We thought there were different things, but if your glutathione system is low, your whole immune system biases towards TH2, which is why these sick people have no ability to respond to viruses, which is called TH1, but they're allergic to all their food. That's called TH2. So you've got this biased immune system that's predicated onto a lowered glutathione system. So back to these these animals that are born and their whole glutathione system fails to develop the way it's supposed to. There's no more mercury to point the finger at. So we get away with saying, see, it's not mercury as a problem, but the system is now susceptible to every insult that comes its way. And it was because of the exposure at the mother's level. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Is this new research or is this ongoing? Or Well, it's just sort of been pouring out over the last couple of years and you have to be able to see it and connect it to all the stuff that you've seen clinically and tie all those points together. I mean, we're at a point where there is so much research out there, but those mm -hmm. researchers don't know how to get it out to you and they don't know how to tie it together with a couple of other things. And frankly, they're scared, completely scared to say that it actually has any human relevance at all because they're afraid they'll lose their funding because somehow something happened where all the funding for this kind of toxicity research only goes to environmental data only goes to working on animals and looking in the environment it is never pointed at the human world there is some sort of mm -hmm. fear probably at uh, you know an industrial level of what the but also at a public health level or public health officials they're i think they're afraid of what the implication is in their allowance of mercury in the mouth and in the vaccines and mm -hmm. and there's some fear there and so we and it's very justified and so we need people to be able to tie this stuff together that won't lose their funding uh yeah. and will be able to continue in their profession and so it's people like me because i don't get funding from anybody you know they may <laughs> kill me but you know i, no, I don't think that'll happen soon. you've been around long enough so I, you've been doing this for like it's 20 years now is it no it just feels like that uh i mean i would had been in graduate school in mercury research since 2000 And so that's almost 15 years. But I started this company in 2006, and I really only started doing clinical work in this company in 2009. Great, great. Okay, so a couple of things I wanted to tie up that you were saying before is um, you were talking about glutathione and how mercury affects glutathione. And then you were talking about how the fact that we have a toxin like mercury in our system, if we have things our system that protects us, we can be okay with a relatively high level of mercury if our system is really good at dealing with it, right? Exactly. Right, so what it, what is that system? I mean, it's it's glutathione. Is yeah, it other things. Beautiful. Thank you so much for saying what is that system because that's what I'm always trying to teach. Glutathione on its own is relatively impotent. It needs. It's got so many functions through the body, but it needs enzymes that drive it into each of those functions. So if we want it to quench hydrogen peroxide. Or, or fix a lipid peroxide, we need glutathione peroxidase to make that happen. If we want it to bind to mercury that's stuck to a protein, we need glutathione S-transferase. So we need the glutathione. We need glutathione S-transferase to catalyze the movement of the mercury. Now, let's just sidetrack. Or arsenic or cadmium, 
transfer that from the cellular protein onto the glutathionase glutathionase transferase. But now we've got in the cell a mercury glutathione conjugate. We want to get that out of the cell. And now we need the transport system. These are trans transmembrane transport proteins called multidrug resistance proteins. And they're going to use ATP and magnesium to shuttle that mercury glutathione conjugate from the cell to the blood. Now we've got another transporter in that family to pull it from the blood into the liver, and then another transporter to dump it from the liver into the small intestine through the bile duct. Those transporters are also working in the proximal tubules of the kidney, and they were, are working in the intestines. So we have this movement from cell to blood. Well, first we have conjugation with the metal movement from cell to blood, then filtration out of the blood through kidney, liver, and intestine. And right all there is the whole game of detoxification. So you, you're talking about transporter proteins at each one, each one of those steps? Each one of those steps. So we need from inside the cell to out of the cell, and then we need filtration. And those are also transporter proteins, and they go into the liver right to the intestine or into the kidney and into the urine. Of all those, the movement into the liver is the most important. And that movement can be blocked. And especially what gets blocked very easily is the movement, then the propagation of that movement from the liver into the intestine. It'll move from the liver to the gallbladder, through the bile transport, and then into the small intestine. And what I see a lot of is a block between liver and small intestine. Now we, we go to our, our tribal knowledge is the greatest, uh, and we shouldn't even call them tribal because they've become very scientific over 10,000 years, are our systems of Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. In Chinese medicine, liver, small intestine, you bring that up to good TCM guys and they understand that as a communication system. And in our new biochemical science, there's great work that, that, that demonstrates how liver and small intestine decide together how to metabolize toxins, both in endogenous ones we create and exogenous ones, ones we take in. And when they lose their ability to communicate, there's this disruption in, in detoxification. And that disruption that blocks the movement from the liver into the small intestine, I see all the time. And it can come through an accumulation of metal in the GI tract. So in our teaching of how to detoxify, fundamental to it is to move the metals and other toxins out of the intestine. And that goes back to really what's been known for a long time in naturopathy is what they call generically intestinal binders. Intestinal binders are things that move through the stomach and are not absorbed but as they go through the GI tract, they're sorbing toxins. So this is the simplest of those are the clays and activated charcoal. And then we move into ones that are more specific for metals. And in the naturopathic world, that's chlorella, which is insoluble cell walls of single-celled algae. And in those walls, there's sulfhydro groups that are bound to those walls. And those sulfhydro groups do the metal binding. And then you move up to ones that we've designed to have lots of sulfhydro groups, like the product we make that's a doctor product called IMD, 
And these are silica products. Silica particles that are not absorbed have incredibly high surface area. They make clays look like so low surface area, 300 yards per, per gram of this. And they have the sulfhydro groups all bound onto that surface. And they go through and they bind all those metals and they take them away from those transport proteins and away from the walls of the stomach so this chlorella to move more toxin down to the GI tract. So working from the small intestine to clear up the small intestine, allow it to sort of reassociate with the, the liver uh, is really, really big. And one of the things I'm moving into my product line now that I'm just totally enamored with is, is bitters. You know, we've been using bitters at the turn of the century, it was the cure-all for everything in this in in this new world here. But it's an old, uh, it's a European thing for forever. The European lineages of love bitters because bitter herbs like gentian and dandelion stimulate flow from the bile to the small intestine, and that's the root in, in which these toxins are moving. And we have cholestasis, blockage of the gallbladder, failure to move. Bile in for bile does two things. It it moves in to digest fats, but it's also the highway along which all the toxins are moving. So using bitters is really really important for normalizing detoxification. Great, great. So basically, the main principle you have here is you're like you're trying to ensure that flow is continued, right? So that's one of the roles of, of, of the bitters, for example. And you're also trying to make sure that toxins are not reabsorbed and they're, they're bound to, to exit them, which is what you're talking about, the binders. And there's bile binders and there's, there's so many other ones you were talking about. So you did mention your product uh, and you said it was a bit different. You called it IMD. What does IMD stand for? Uh, intestinal metal detox. Okay. All right. So you just, the function basically of it, you call it, yeah. The function is very specifically for the metals, and it's to so if we if we back up into the binders, and so we've got uh, we've got a world of different chemicals coming at us, and there's no binder that can get every one of those different chemicals with all of their different properties, and so there's classes of chemicals that each binder is good at. The most universal binder is charcoal, and it does a little bit of everything. Now, you've got specific metal-specific binders like IMD, very, very powerful on metals, seems to do good on mold toxins, but that's really its world there. Then you've got the clays like bentonite and zeolite. I know the zeolite marketers like to think that it binds everything, but its ability to bind mercury is like zero, uh, but it's very good on a number of different pesticides and herbicides. And in the mold toxins, almost all the mold toxins suck on to charcoal like beautifully, except for the food-based mold toxin, aflatoxin, which is very specific for bentonite or for zeolite. And then you've got one of my favorite other binders is chitosan, C-H-I-T-O-S-A-N. And that is known in the health world as being a fat binder, but it's not a fat binder. It's a bile binder. The prescription bile binders are cholestyramine and Welchol. Chitosan is virtually identical to Welchol. The strongest of them all is cholestyramine, but it can be a little binding uh, in terms of making you constipated. So I like a cocktail of cholestyramine, uh, uh, cholestyramine, activated carbon, 
a little bentonite or zeolite and the IMD, and you've covered everything. Right, right. And the reason that we like the biobinders we mm-hmm. didn't mention in terms of toxins is because the biological toxins, Richie Shoemaker is the original guru on this, uh, the biotoxins that you'll get from molds both growing in you and growing around you are conjugated to different things like leucuronic acid and sulfate, and they go down to the GI tract, and they're bound very effectively by cholestyramine, welchol, and chitosan, and protected from against reuptake because they are internally recirculated. They have uh, hepatobiliary recirculation. You reabsorb them. So you want those to stick on to the cholestyramine, welchol, or chitosan. The other biotoxins that are really big there are Lyme toxins. I mean, Lyme toxins are horrible for you, uh, as are candida toxins. So all of those biological toxins really go after those, what we call the biobinders, and that's their importance. So you put this cocktail together and you've got all toxins together. And, you know, my experience with that was dramatic in terms of its clearing of my nervous system. I cleared my liver and kidneys and my immune system was functioning great by doing this metal-based stuff. But then when I did this cocktail of binders, I had a very, a very radical experience with uh, my nervous wow. system. Uh, r- really brought it up to higher, you know, borderline clairvoyant. Right, right, right. I wasn't aware we were going to have this discussion. It's been interesting because I've been <laughs> Are we playing. Go there? <laughs> yeah, because I've been playing a lot with uh, binders uh, lately myself. A lot because um, I and I've actually. I've been on the Shoemaker Protocol because I had those kinds of issues. Uh, later, it came, like, Lyme as well came along. Um, so, you know, we're talking about these things. And um, one of the things I was playing around with um, was substituting, because I was on CSM for a while, uh, substituting that for other things. Cholestyramine, yeah. Yeah, cholestyramine, uh, which I didn't want to take forever because it's a drug. And uh, you mentioned some of the downsides. So I stopped taking that and I replaced it with soluble fiber, um, just like psyllium husk. Right. And there's this thing called the VCS, the Visual Contrast Sensitivity yeah, Test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine is perfectly clear all the time now, um, as long as I'm taking fi- like that soluble fiber. As long as you're, and if you stop with the fiber, it gets worse? Well, I haven't done that experiment. Yeah, Because uh, I mean, I'm quite, I like to feel good. <laughs> I, I kind of like it. <laughs> well, let, let's list through the other fiber-based binders, because I didn't, my new best friend in the fiber-based binders is Acacia gum. And, I, and that's a soluble fiber. It's really cheap. And it has a big... One of the other things that these do, uh, certainly the acacia gum, uh, I think uh, pectin does this, is they normalize the immune system and the GI tract to get you away from that hypersensitivity that chronically will get people get where they can't eat anything, but they host every bug under the sun. So to normalize that immune function there is a big thing, and that's going to then keep down inflammatory states and increase detoxification because I, I didn't say GI inflammation breaks down this whole track of detoxification and it actually shuts down all the transport proteins until you can break that. And so the soluble fibers are a big part of that. And uh, uh, Gary Gordon was telling me that there was another product that he says replaces CSM. And it's another fiber that we think of for uh, prostate. It's it's almost like a polyphenol. It'll come to me, beta-cetosterol. That is also rumored to have these effects as well, which, and you're just using psyllium. 
that's all I've been using for a while. I was using chlorella and spirulina, um, throwing everything in there, but I've actually haven't been doing that consistently. So I'm pretty sure it's just a psyllium. It's an experiment. It's an N equals one experiment, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I would encourage you to try uh, chitazan, charcoal, uh, some clay and uh, IMD together. Do the other fibers during the day and at night do this in pretty, pretty decent dose, you know? So you're taking like a quarter to a half a teaspoon and see what happens. I mean, originally I started kind of stimming like autistics do. And then there was this big flush of light through my, through my nervous system. <laughs> right. People, people are probably thinking this sounds crazy uh, right now, but I've had some, when you be experiences in, you bind this stuff and it's coming out of you. Um, basically you'll feel suicidal. You'll go to the toilet and you feel like a new man. You feel great. Uh, and so it's at first I thought I was going crazy, but this, stuff has happened several times it's a repeatable experiment and so. you can see you get the as i mean you can do it at a slow rate and get there without having side effects if you're doing it you have to have your system under pretty good control before you do high doses i mean one of the the basics i teach are you start really slow and you titrate up because we can't take you where we can go right now right away it will dysregulate the system instead of fix you and the other thing is pulsing on and off with things that have genetic upregulation the plant chemicals that turn up your antioxidant system you have to pulse them on and off and you have to work from slow up to up to high but once you've stabilized your system you're not going to have what i call the cellular revolution where you bring yourself up to higher functioning until you get to some high doses of things. But you have to get to know your system and you have to be able to know how, how to take yourself through those experiences. This is fascinating stuff. You've obviously had a ton of experience to, to guide you through like this because I haven't had a discussion quite like this before. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really interesting. I didn't know we were going to talk about this or we were going to talk about uh, mercury quantification, which we shall talk about. Um, <laughs> so... All the way at the limits of where this goes. So yeah. We well, it's interesting because that's you started with mercury, of course, and, and then you yeah. were led to this other stuff, which is related because of the, the toxins and so on. So let's just take a step back and say, like, a lot of people don't realize that we we all have mercury in our bodies, but where's it coming from? Why why do we all have mercury in our bodies? Mercury is an element. It's neither created nor destroyed, which means it's always out there. But the problem is when we start focusing it into different areas and using a lot of it that it gets out in very high amounts. On a broadly distributed level, our mining of hydrocarbons uh, brings it out and fertilizes the air with it because mercury in the environment concentrates into areas that have a lot of organic matter like uh, you know the jungles and swamps that produce our hydrocarbons. And so we fertilize it into the air and it rains down into the water bodies and where there is a chemistry conducive to it forming this form called methylmercury that then moves up the food chain into the fish and we'll have fish with 10 to 1 to 10 million times higher level than the water around it so our fish are now a, a source of mercury. They've always been a source of mercury coming from uh, out of volcanoes and in natural cycling, but we've got it at higher levels now than we used to. Then in the fish, 
there's different fish that have high levels and low levels, and in a second we'll talk about them. So the main sources, now we've got the fish, and then we've got where we've concentrated it down. We've mined it, we've turned it into a metal, and then we've stuck it in our mouth like that's a smart idea. I mean, who the hell thought of that? <laughs> right, right. For people at home, if you have silver in your mouth, basically, that's probably an amalgam, which means it has mercury in it. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, unless it's a nickel cast, in which case it's nickel. You know what the the term nickel means? Uh, nickel is old Nick's metal. Old Nick was the devil because the guys that worked with nickel, I mean, it just ruined them. They turned totally crazy, and and they couldn't even figure out how to fix them. So it was old Nick's metal. That's nickel. Mercury, hydrogerium, HG was water silver, and uh, it's really a phenomenally useful metal in chemistry and it does so many different things and it was even used in medicine but it's just such a slippery creature it easily turns bad on you and so the your metal fillings were 50% mercury and maybe 48% silver and then a bunch of other metals uh that help harden it bring it together and the word from the dental people is it's inert now well no it's not inert it's just less volatile than it was as the the liquid mercury and it's volatilizing as a gas off off of your amalgams every day we can put a little meter in there and show you and it's not only volatilizing but it's corroding and so you're swallowing one form as a corrosion product that goes through your gi system you don't absorb that but it dysregulates your GI system and your detox system. The other form is inhaled as a vapor, which goes right into your blood, right into your brain, right everywhere it wants to, and then breaks down. The mercury is a vapor, it's called elemental mercury, and then it breaks down into inorganic mercury, which is when it starts getting into your systemic reactions and your enzymes and your cells, and it, that's when it starts wreaking its havoc. So our main sources now are fish and amalgam. Secondary sources are vaccines, but vaccines are rapidly, they're losing their mercury and gaining aluminum instead. But mercury, you know, if you don't have amalgam or fish, you likely don't have a real big source unless you have a source in your house. You know, people, there was a lot of mercury in industry and pharmacy and there are houses people move into where somebody's be a pharmacist and spilled a bottle of mercury in there. I mean, they used to they used to bring it back and give it to their grandkids to play around with because it was a liquid, and a lot of it would move around. And on a big picture, I believe that we're a lot more sensitive to mercury now than we used to be, and that is kind of a long discussion about it. But our earlier discussion about epigenetic modification of the system that makes you more sensitive to mercury is a big part of that. I think as a population, we're more sensitive to the toxic inputs than we used to be. And then you're, you're going to hate it when I tell you what happens when you get mold exposures. Oh, no, I'm really interested because, you know, I've been through all that, room, <laughs> been through all that protocol. What's Shoemaker got to Or what have you got to say about Shoemakers and the connection there? Well, I, I don't think Shoemaker ever knew the, the connection. He just focused on the mold and, you know, would think, ah, well, it's mold that's making you toxic. It's not your mercury. So the mold... Well, first, let's get back to your response to toxins. Your response is based on the glutathione system. But in the cytoplasm of the cell, you've got this big master switch called the NRF2. And when it gets triggered, it goes into the nucleus and it tells your nucleus to turn on all the chemoprotective genes. So all the detox, boom, it comes up and 
clears everything out. The mold toxins epigenetically stop you from making the NRF2 protein. That's so nasty. Oh, that's awful. It's, it's really terrible. And I mean, NRF, NRF2 is coming up a lot now because it's oh, one yeah. of the tools people are using to detoxify. Yeah, so detoxify. everybody goes, okay, good. Then yeah. we'll throw these plant chemicals at them. It'll turn it up and and everything will get better. No, that should have already happened. And it won't. And it should have told you to turn up your glutathione level and get rid of all this stuff. But it didn't. And so now, even when I come at you with the plant-based chemicals, turn that up. It doesn't work. The switch is broken. So I have to give you glutathione and I got to find a way to get it in. And that's a trick. I have to slowly, slowly nurse you back to health until we can get the toxins out, until we can then get that epigenetic influence away and start you running your system yourself. That's why it's so hard to fix the multi-exposure, chronically ill person. That's why it took you so many years and so many things to get back. That data is just coming out now. Wow, so you're direct, I mean, I'm guessing you're using your glutathione delivery via liposomal and, 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 and stuff to go directly. Right, right. I mean, we get some great clinical such great clinical response for that. So we use a, a, a intraoral uh, liposomal delivery, which, you know, you've got to make the liposomes to do this in a certain size range, a certain purity range, and you can absorb right through the oral cavity and as you're swallowing it through the upper GI because the liposomes have a great potential, but they were really all based around all their great data was all uh, through cell culture studies and injections. Once it hits the acids, one thing in the stomach, but it's the bile and the lipases, they're surfactants. They, they, they destroy your liposome system. And so you really have to get uh, absorption going as soon as you can in the upper areas. And so we've gotten phenomenal clinical response using this intraoral delivery of glutathione. And we, with the sick people, we have to go real slow because it, it stimulates so much response in the system. And the most classical thing that we see is after a couple of weeks on our system, the people who had Lyme disease, but were the, you know, the 70% of them that were non-testers, they go through a crisis and you test them and they all test positive because the glutathione is what the Th1 response of your immune system to that invasion is predicated on adequate glutathione. And when it doesn't have it, it can't create the immune response, which is the basis of the testing for the Lyme. So all of a sudden, they feel like crap. I say, go get your Lyme test or your Epstein-Barr test or your mycoplasma test. Test as much as you can. And boom, 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 boom. I was positive for all these things when they weren't before. And so it's really proven to be a great way to get the glutathione into the system. And uh, it, you know. So just to take a step back there, you said it, you can clinically test that it's having an impact. So when you add liposomal glutathione, what, what are you seeing? Are you looking at certain blood markers or what's going on there? Well, that was the problem in the beginning. Uh, and this is true for all, for all the guys who make any kind of delivery of glutathione. It's very difficult to look at blood levels of glutathione, give them a dose and see it happen because the glutathione very quickly propagates through the system and your blood has kind of set points for the glutathione level in the blood and that signal kind of wipes out what you're trying to 
look at there. And so you kind of have to look at end markers. And so as a sort of community of people that make glutathione products, we're just finding how to test these. So I had talked to you about using some of the marker tests. Uh, uh, and I talked to you about talking to Cheryl Burdett from Dunwoody because they have nice F2 isoprostane. 8-deoxyguanosine, oxidized LDL. We just started a clinical trial where we're looking at changes in those markers because uh, really, you know, biopsies would be the best thing, but, you know, most people aren't up for biopsy testing. Uh, and blood is a little tricky. And so we're just starting to find all the markers to really read and to quantify that. When I say clinically, it's been working out well. I mean, looking at people's response to it. Now, the new thing to test is, you know, now people are testing positive for Lyme uh, where they hadn't before because the Lyme tests were all based on the body's immune reaction to the Lyme, not on testing the Lyme itself. Uh, so so that's the, the glutathione has been working out really, really well for us. Well, excellent. So we spoke to Cheryl Burdett before about those markers, so people can go and check out that episode if they don't know what we're talking about there. But basically, you're looking at the downstream impact of the glutathione rather than trying to measure it directly, right? So you can see, ah. Oh, exactly. Real yeah, trick. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's nice. That's a, that's a nice way to look at it. So you said that you have to go very easy with adding liposomal glutathione to people. So um, I tried many times to use liposomal glutathione personally, and I get I feel way, way worse um, whenever I do that. So I guess I'm fitting into your situation there. Just Yeah, you have to move slow and make sure that you have enough molybdenum in your system. I mean, that was one of the greatest things towards helping detox that has come from the methylation groups like Ben Lin, Chamiasco, uh, and all the methylation obsessors is the integration of the methylation cycle in with the, the sulfur metabolism cycle like uh, cystathionine beta synthase and SUOX where they're taking sulfur groups, spinning them out towards sulfate and they're building up as sulfite and you're getting sulfite toxicity. And so when you're taking things from like the garlic and onion, uh, the allium groups and the broccoli seed extract, a lot of people would feel much worse on them and they'd all, always say, oh, it's a, it's a Herxheimer reaction, it's a detox reaction, or I'm killing my bugs, they're dying off. No, you've got sulfite toxicity because <laughs> right, right. Yeah. they're all, they have all have upregulated probably epigenetically as well as straight up genetically have upregulated CBS activity. They're spinning everything towards sulfate. It's building up as sulfite, which is a toxin, and they feel toxic from it. From it. You give them molybdenum and that whole pathway is smoothed out. I was one of them too. And because they're like that, I move towards using polyphenols as NRF2 upregulators. And the only sulfur compound I use is lipoic acid because I can get a lot of upregulation without a whole lot of sulfur. And I didn't know exactly why that was. Now I know that it's CBS issues. And I stayed away from using too much of the alliums and the crucifers. But now we know molybdenum can help them use that. Now, back to the glutathione, there you are bringing a lot of sulfur into the system and you may need uh, molybdenum to help move that, but you want to start with low doses. A lot of people, like if you were using one of the other products that's out, out on the market, most of them are dosed in teaspoons or sachets that are four to 500 milligrams per dose. 
and it's way too much. You know, and one of my friends who got me in early in this world is one of the now late and great old heroes in this movement, and that was Hal Huggins. And he had done a lot of work with liposomal glutathione, and he said no more than 100 milligrams, I think 25 milligrams. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is because you have to start high, but you also have to see what byproducts are in the liposomal glutathione. If you're smelling a lot of hydrogen sulfide, that's not the liposome, that's hydrogen sulfide. Uh, and some of these products decay very quickly. And so some of those can irritate the sulfur system. So you have to nurse back. You, one, you're, you have to deal with the glutathione stimulating your immune system and the detox system. And two, you have to handle all the sulfur that's coming into the system. So you have to start low. I mean, ours is can dose by the pump and each pump is 50 milligrams of glutathione. And for really sick people, it's like that once a day. And then we slowly work you up. I mean, as you get into this deep, you might be doing 500 milligrams twice a day. Wow, wow. That's, that's amazing. Chris, you're, you're full of a wealth of information on this whole <laughs> detox subject. And I was, uh, so anyway, let's, let's go back to Mercury because, right, you have this company called Quicksilver Scientific um, where you establish this testing, which is different to a lot of the, um, how would you say, the, the, the functional medicine testing, which looks at mercury. Oh, yeah, so could, this is totally a different job. Right, right. Can you give a, a quick background on the original testing, the urine and the post-challenge and the weaknesses of that, and then what you've done in order to quantify the burden as best possible? Yeah, so, so the challenge test is what was in place here before I got here. And there was a reason to use challenge tests years ago. There's still some reason to use them, but they don't give you a whole lot of information about your mercury. And this is for a couple of reasons. And they're also the hardest on the patients that need this the most. They're really chronically ill people. So a challenge test, you take some chelator that solubilizes mercury in your blood and lymph and drops it through your kidneys. And it accentuates a signal that was already there. So if your urine is, say, two points of mercury and we give you a chelator, it becomes 20 points of mercury. If your urine is three points, it becomes 30 points. You know, maybe it's a hundredfold. We'll go to hundredfold for DMPS. So it goes from two to 200, three to 300. So it becomes much easier to see what's going on there. And we didn't used to have super sensitive equipment. And obviously, quite often, we would see no mercury in the urine until we'd chelate it, and then we'd see mercury. And that was just because our detection limits, what how low we can see weren't very good. So we needed to stimulate the urinary output so that it came up to the window where we could see it. Right now, we can see just about everybody at just about any level, and we don't need that stimulation anymore. Okay, is that does that go for everyone's tests, like the doctor's data? Because doctor's data and all of these other labs, are they all a much lower detection limit now? Or is it specific ones? Well, they could. Uh, I think they're still doing it the same way. They they could have limits where they were are much lower, but they're they're really running things the same way they always have, and that makes it for your end. It, it's making it affordable for you. Uh, it, it's a fairly cheap way to see all the metals at once. Right. If but, you use the post challenge, like you were saying. Yeah. Mm. Uh, 
But if you want to really get all of the biochemical information, the biosignature of the mercury in the body, you have to move towards what we do. But now, just back towards what are the hitches with doing a challenge test. Number one, if your excretion of metals out of your kidney is strongly impaired, you will not get that metal that's been solubilized in your blood and lymph out through your kidney. You will get a false positive and you will feel like hell. Number two, if you are, well, two is kind of an extension of the first one. If you're chronically ill, moving that much mercury around and other metals around at once makes you feel really bad. And that is not what you need. Number three, you don't know what form of mercury you're building up. Was it methylmercury from fish? Was it inorganic mercury from your amalgams? What was going on in there? So there's a limitation on how much information you get about source. And of course, it could be totally blocked by excretion markers. Mm. So they just put a like a, a one class of mercury. You don't know what type of mercury in it is there. Exactly. And are the only types that are bad for us methylmercury and inorganic mercury or... Well, no, there's other bad forms. You just don't get it so much. So methylmercury is an organomercurial, but uh, in the vaccines was ethylmercury, which was also an organomercurial. But the ethylmercury pretty quickly breaks down into inorganic mercury in the body. So really, you've got elemental mercury coming into you through the air from your amalgams or from your environment. That's becoming inorganic mercury. You've got methylmercury coming in from the fish, which stays as methylmercury, but some of it breaks down to inorganic mercury. And then you've got ethylmercury from vaccines coming in, and that's really ending up as inorganic mercury too. So the most relevant measures are the inorganic and the methylmercury. Great, great. Thanks for the clarification. And then, so when you get over to our testing, we want to know how much of which is in there. And we're going to go, we're going to do blood, hair, and urine. Okay. And blood is your, everybody talks about burden. What's the body burden? And so a lot of what was grew up around the challenge test, the challenge test was really a way that given our old technology, we could see, get a good feel of what was in there for what we had available to us in technology. But everybody grew this mythology up that it was the only way to see the body burden. And this mythology that somehow these chelators mystically got into every cell, took a representative amount and came out through your kidney and told you what the body burden was. Now, in those, you know, from the 90s through the early 2000s, a lot of academic groups went and evaluated whether that was correct. And I have a white paper that's on our new website about challenge testing, and it discusses those five papers. And those five papers came to the conclusion that all that signal was there in test in the testing without the chelators. The chelators just accentuated what was going on. However, you did need decent testing to show that. And now we have that testing available to us. For Has it got a specific name? Are you using something different? The testing that we're doing is called mercury speciation testing, where the speciation part is separating in the sample, separating the methylmercury from the inorganic mercury so we can look at them independently. And is there a level and you're looking at? Like, is there a specific, when you say it's a lower level? 
Well, we're working like people used to be able to test in the first. It was in the parts per million range, and so you didn't see much. And then they got down into parts per billion. We can look in the parts per trillion to parts per quadrillion level. And this was all necessary for doing environmental stuff. And so I built my analytical system at the University of Illinois, and we built it to look at this parts per quadrillion levels of environmental mercury. And then when I came into clinical, we applied it to clinical. And the other thing that was out there about clinical testing in the challenge world was that blood was a lousy marker and it only showed you the last two to three days of exposure. Now, I don't know how that got out there because since the 70s, they've known that the half-lives of these uh, forms of mercury were anywhere between 50 and 70 days in healthy people and out to 240 days in, in unhealthy people. Uh, but somehow the, the mythology became two to three days. But really blood's problem was that it disproportionately showed you your methylmercury burden over your inorganic mercury burden. And once we separated these two, it became very, very clear. And that was just because of the way methylmercury distributed between blood and organs versus how inorganic mercury distributed between blood and organs. Once we separate them, they're phenomenal measures. In fact, methylmercury is a perfect measure of body burden. Inorganic is pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. It's a little bit slower to distribute between when the blood comes down, it's slow to come out of the organs and resupply. So it's a little bit slow. So Urine had always been used for inorganic mercury exposure because urine is all inorganic mercury. And if your kidneys are working well, it's a very good representation of what the blood is, which is then a representation of what the body is. But if the kidney transporters are not working well, and this is almost universally how the sick people are, they've got low filtration capacity and the urine is falsely low, giving you a false negative. It is only once we could directly compare mercury in the urine, inorganic mercury in the urine, to the blood inorganic mercury that we got a direct measure of the metal filtration capacity of the kidneys. And we're at that marker right there. Those combination of the blood inorganic mercury and the urinary mercury was a beautiful one to see this blockage in detoxification. Great. So the change for you has been like more a uh, lower level of detection for the urine plus plus the blood. Now, yes. And you also add the hair one in. Why are you adding the hair test? So urine is our excretion measure for inorganic mercury. Blood is our, our reservoir or, uh, or burden measure for inorganic mercury. Then blood is our burden marker, our reservoir marker for, for methylmercury as well. So blood methylmercury. And then our excretion marker for methylmercury is the hair. Ideally, because methylmercury doesn't come out the urine, it goes uh, it conjugated to glutathione, goes through the, the liver, bile, small intestine, fecal excretion. But there's a lot of changes to it as it goes through the GI tract. And so the ideal measure would be bile, be a bile to blood measure, but we can't get that. Hair has a history of papers done on it where the sickest people for a given exposure had the lowest uh, mercury levels in the hair. 
And so the hair to blood ratio, blood methylmercury versus hair, hair is all methylmercury. There's no inorganic mercury excreted in the hair. So the hair to blood is our methylmercury excretion measure, whereas urine to blood is our inorganic mercury excretion. So it's showing how well it's getting excreted. Yes, yes, it is. So does it, uh, it, it correlates well with the stool because you're saying someone's getting excreted in the stool? Yes, it does. It correlates pretty well with the stool. Stool is a, a little, really getting a good stool measure. You'd want like two days collection, homogenization, and you send it in. And people really don't like yeah. doing tests. <laughs> right, right. So exactly. is that why you don't do it? Because it's, it's just like not something people no like doing. There's right. on that. Unless you've got serious GI parasites, then people will do anything. And if they don't have parasites, they don't want to do that. And, and, and there's a, yeah, they just don't want to do that. And so we use the hair as a surrogate measure for how the excretion mm. is working. Great. Excellent. So with this, what type of mercury the, the burden is and how well it's getting excreted or not? Yeah, we do. And, and once you get used to looking at that whole picture, you can look at it, some other processes in there. For instance, say you've only got so now let's let's talk about relative toxicity of the different forms. Methylmercury is toxic, but not nearly as toxic to the cells as inorganic mercury is. And methyl is usually has a rap for being the most toxic, but it's just absorbable. So if I feed you inorganic mercury, you won't absorb it. It'll just ulcerate your GI tract. It won't make it to the brain. But if I feed you methylmercury, you absorb it, goes to the brain, you see it's toxic. But once they're in the body, the inorganic mercury is more toxic. And if we look at animals that eat fish, the ones that demethylate a lot, they break down methylmercury into inorganic mercury, they have the highest toxicity in the body. In the brain, they have the highest neurotoxic lesions on the glutamate receptors. These were what I was talking about before, this hyperanxiety and which causes neuroinflammation. So we're able to see fish eaters without amalgams who is releasing more of the methylmercury, breaking it down into inorganic mercury. And we know those people are going to do worse on fish than the people who don't break down so much. So we can track that demethylation movement. Uh, in other animals, the toxicity from demethylation is in the liver. So we know that demethylation is a risk factor for fish eaters. And we're able to see uh, how that methylmercury drops down into the inorganic mercury pool. So there's a couple of things that we see uh, about how the body is processing these different forms of mercury. Great, great, fantastic. We've kind of already gone over our, our mark, and uh, I think there's so much like more to, to talk about because you, you kind of know all these other subjects. So I'm wondering, if it would, would it be better to uh, have another episode another date? We can, we can definitely follow up and talk about treatment approach and results that we've seen, hitches in the road. Uh, yeah, there's something down here about biomarkers I like to test. I think that should be a whole separate uh, whole separate interview. Yeah, yeah, great, because we, we've already covered so much here. Um, um, so um, just to leave to, off today, uh, just to get it clear for people at home, who should consider that mercury could be behind some issues they have, whatever they are? We talked about the anxiety specifically, but... In your opinion, if you're someone at home, what kinds of things would you be suspicious of and think about getting these types of tests? Yeah, yeah. Well, one, do you have the source? Uh, because the dysfunction that comes is common to a lot 
of dysfunctions are, are common to a lot of disease states, these morbidities we talk about. But the most common ones that come around with amalgam-based mercury are GI, joint, then fatigue issues. It's wearing down and weighing on the system. The neurological problems, and this can come from amalgam or GI or, or fish, are anxiety and depression. The depression can go along, either can go along with the adrenal fatigue and the sort of chronic fatigue pain syndrome that can be caused by the metals, or you can have anxiety depression cycles where anxiety is keeping you sympathetically stimulated until you crash and go into depression. Uh, and so that sort of constellation of problems is the most obvious one in the glandular system. Mercury is a serious glandular toxin and thyroid is most commonly hit by it. And you'll see if you're looking at quantifying things, uh, mercury and then also cadmium and arsenic uh, poison the deiodinase that takes T4 to T3. So if you're pooling up T4 and failing to get adequate T3, that's a pretty specific marker for metal toxins. Mercury for one, but cadmium and arsenic also do that. Uh, pituitary dysregulation uh, on a metal side is more specifically mercury. It builds up in the pituitary. Great. And the pituitary can have impacts on lots of things. Right, right. Every gland. Right. Yeah. So if you're looking at hormones and you find it's uh, your failure to make testosterone is not peripheral, that it's, uh, you know, you're failing to get stimulation from the pituitary and you're not making this, the, I forget which one it is now, uh, luteinizing hormone or whichever it is to, to stimulate testosterone. If the pituitary is failing, uh, either to signal your uh, hormone production in the testes or hormone production from, uh, from the thyroid, then you can look at metals in there. And, uh, and that can be mercury and, and methylmercury is a little better at getting in there, but both of them can get in there and dysregulate that. Great, great. Thank you for that overview, Chris. That'll help people kind of put a frame around everything we've been talking about today. And um, yeah, let's continue this discussion with the other parts of treatment and, you know, some of the products and the protocols and things that you've used and, and how you've been tracking progress and so on at another date. Yeah, especially because then when we get to talking about that, you'll see that, oh my God, this isn't just mercury when we treat it. We're treating that globally dysfunctional glutathione system. And these things that we thought were side effects of detoxification, like all this fatigue, is the immune system actually responding to chronic infections. And so it's a much bigger thing than going after mercury. It's going after bringing the wellness back to the body. Wow, that's great. Well, Chris, it's been great connecting with you. Like, uh, really, um, I think you've helped me with a few of my personal things, on, like with this discussion already. So, um, yeah, and you're a fantastic talker. So, um, looking forward to having you on the show again. All right, thanks so much. You take care now, Damien. Have a great day. Ciao. Bye bye. So, what what I think we have left is uh, basically talk a little bit about. Finalizing the tri test is that the best we're ever going to be able to get in terms of mercury burden testing? Your perspective on that? Oh, I think it's going to take some time, but the next generation will be figuring out a way to image it in organs, especially the brain. I think the the 
one trick that we still have is that we're trying to apply some number that we get to the mythical body burden. And I think that certain people end up hyperaccumulating it in different organs. And uh, this is something that people who do applied kinesiology or things like that have long. Can MRIs pick this up? Or no, I, 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 I don't. Some of the scans they're using for, you know, for, to, to, to identify lead in bones, for example, could you use similar approaches? There might be something like they're using for the bone lead and they'll figure out how to do it for mercury. Mercury's present at much lower concentrations and I think they just haven't figured out how to do that yet. And, you know, it may be 10 plus years away or more, but eventually we'll be able to see that because there seems to be a hyperaccumulation that happens in some people and the brain for certain is a big issue when you get a lot in the brain and certain people exposed to a lot of mercury vapor can have a lot in their brain. And even after the blood levels and the whole body levels have come down, the brain, because of the blood-brain barrier, is very, very slow to release the mercury. And so people that were dental assistants years ago, it's a really hard to test them and know what's happening neurologically. And I think other organs hyperaccumulate too, especially the thyroid and uh, maybe the prostate and ovaries. And uh, so w- w- that'll be the next level up is is doing that kind of a thing. Yeah, but is, as you, you think, it's quite a way off like a decade. Or- yeah, I, I haven't seen that we have that uh, technology yet. Mm. And as you also mentioned that it's in lower concentrations. So it sounds like it's more toxic than lead at lower concentrations. We have lower concentrations, so it's going to be harder to detect than the uh, Yes, yes, for sure. All right. Well, so you, you also mentioned uh, dentistry, uh, like people working in, d- in dentistry and like their exposure to mercury, mercury. I guess that's one of the most, uh, the, the kind of biggest cases that you may come across in normal dentistry. So I was just wondering, is that a big area of your practice, like people getting tested and and coming up with the highest levels? I can't say that they always have the highest levels because we're working with biological dentists. And so they've already made the leap into understanding the toxicity and they're basing the value of their practice on offering mercury safe dentistry. And so they've already started to protect themselves they remove things in a highly protected environment. They don't leave amalgam sitting around. They don't install amalgam. And so they don't tend to be super high. Uh, if we were just getting general practice dentists, I think we would see them being being pretty high. Uh, but by and large, the highest people that we see are people who eat a lot of fish that are high up the food chain. They're eating a lot of tuna and swordfish, uh, large ocean-going fish. And usually if they have that and they have amalgams too at the same time, their detox system is weak and they're loading a lot of mercury in all the time. Right. So to give you like a quick personal thing, I had my some mercury removed from my teeth last week in L.A., it's a bit of an interesting story because, first of all, I didn't realize I had any mercury. And and w- what happened is I, I was in Thailand three years ago, and they have good professional dentistry and medical services. It's kind of offshore, low cost, but pretty high standards. So they did remove some amalgams, but they didn't remove them completely. They left some underneath the new composite resin placed on top, which I don't know if you've come across before. So, and then they actually gave me a report which said that there was no amalgams left. 
So I've had chronic health issues and I was going forward thinking. Yeah, I do run into this fairly often because they leave that in there as a structural support and they're just kind of being too lazy to pull it out because then they'll have to do some real reconstructive work. Mm. But anyway, so it turned up that in the x-rays, the biological dentist in LA is like, oh, like this is a little really shiny thing. Yeah. You know, and that is probably mercury. And sure enough, once you dug in there, there's this mercury and it was oxidized. It looked really messed up in there. Um, So is that something that happens a lot? I'm just like wondering, or is just I'm really unlucky? No, it happens more than we'd like to think. Even some of the biological dentists do that. Uh, They're not supposed to. And most of the guys that I work with are really, really good. But I've certainly seen I've seen it happen before. And for sure with a lot of the mainstream dentists because they regard it a good structural thing and they think, well, you know, now it's sort of buried underneath this composite and it's not reacting with the environment anymore. Maybe it's not a problem. But uh, I've definitely been able to see that if you come to me and you don't really eat much fish at all and all your amalgams are gone and I analyze you, I should see certain levels. And so I've been able to pick that up in certain people and say, yeah, you probably have amalgam under your crowns. And I'm usually right about that uh, based on just on our testing and being able to see what's still left over. Great. So it's pretty important to choose the right dentist if you want to get this um, stuff removed uh, to make sure it's done done properly. Do you have a list that you use or something? Or could you could we maybe link to a list that you have? Of- there are various lists. The The best, I don't maintain a list. I do, you know, when people ask me, I'll tell them who I think are really good. Because there's two things going on. Uh, One is safe removal that is protecting you against the mercury that you would inhale when you remove it. And most people doing this work get that right. The other thing is just being really good technicians and doing exceptional dental work. And it's a big part of it. I mean, if you get all your amalgams out, but it wasn't good technical dentistry, it's uh, it leaves you with a, a whole host of problems uh, coming down the road because well-placed composite should last decades and often uh, it's not put in right. And so there's two aspects there. And so I tend to keep my personal recommendations to people who I've seen their work. And so it's not a really long list. Yeah, right. And so I defer to Leo Cashman at DAMS and Leo Cashman, DAMS, D-A-M-S, I think, .org. Uh, They have a website, and he's been a relentless advocate for safe dentistry, and he really does investigate whether people are doing a good job, whether dentists are doing a good job. He keeps a list of people that he can refer, and he checks up on them to make sure that they're coming through, and uh, people, if they don't like their work, complain to him, and he checks up on that. So. He's my favorite list, uh, go-to list, as far as uh, a, a list that's not just a professional list. So he's who I uh, who I would look to. That's great. It was a pretty crazy experience. They put like a big vacuum in your mouth. Um, oh they, yeah. They put a uh, oxygen on your nose. Uh, you're fully covered. Yeah. <laughs> your face as well, and they're wearing gas masks. Um, yeah, you know, and that's like people ask me about what I think about doing all that. A lot of dentists who are new to holistic dentistry, they look at that and it's like, geez, people look like a bomb squad. (laughs) And uh, that's the best they can do to protect everyone involved, but it's got a a slightly traumatic feel to it. (laughs) And uh, so I I don't necessarily say that the dentists need to go 
that far if they have at least a very clean environment. But they, the dentists are, are out on the front lines getting this stuff out. And uh, no matter how much protection they have, there's still little micro bits of it that go right through all their clothing and, and they're being, they're being exposed. And so it's, I spent a lot of time with the holistic dental world and I try to give them all the access to testing and try to support them in however they want to detox because they do need that support. Yeah. Thanks for looking at that. Cause it seems like it's uh, it's, it's an important area there. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. I, I mean, I don't think we even understand all the things that amalgams do to us. And I think they have a strong effect on the GI tract. And when I teach detox, it's all based on being able to conjugate a toxin to glutathione or one of the other molecules we use for that and transport it down mostly to the GI tract. And when you've got disturbance in the GI tract, including a buildup of metals there, you block up that whole system and it has to sort of uh, do the best it can. It pushes a lot to the kidneys, overloads the kidneys. Uh, I think that there's a lot of collateral damage from amalgam beyond just the mercury that gets into our biochemistry. Well, this is just anecdotal, but after a day of feeling a bit rough, and I assume that despite all the precautions taken, there would be some mercury release while they're taking this. Well, even just the changes to your bite registration have profound effects on you. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just the dental work itself um, is is quite heavy. But after that, I've been recovering in steps from my chronic issue. And since then, I felt like I've jumped another step again. So it's just anecdotal. I haven't done any more testing yet, but it just feels like I've taken another step. And I noticed people, people, and myself included, have have big experiences when they remove all that metal out of their mouth. There's there's so many things going on that we barely understand, but uh, a lot of people have profound emotional releases or spiritual changes or just physical changes. There's, But there's no shortage of anecdotes of, of what happens to people when they get that out. Great, great. So in terms of other kinds of example case studies in, in the population where you would find higher levels, you're saying, so people are eating a lot of fish. I don't know, I like, can you point out specific populations like I know bodybuilders when I was bodybuilding a lot I was eating a lot of tuna and chicken so I probably helped both my arsenic and uh, mercury levels um, back when I was doing that are there any specific other populations or patterns that you see well, they, they tend to be uh, kind of uh, affluent groups in uh, the northeast and on the west coast that eat a lot of fish and they see it as a healthy choice for themselves and they don't buy the cheap fish they they like the affluent aspect of eating these tuna steaks and swordfish you know the most famous serious victim to it was the ceo of imax and uh he still walks with a cane despite being i don't know he's you know upper 40s and he was eating swordfish and tuna two meals a day and working out and thought he was super healthy till he started his nerves started failing him and you know he couldn't hit the ball playing racquetball and soon he was limping and he had exceptionally high levels of mercury and he's got permanent neurological damage from that uh there was another book put out by a, a doctor up in San Francisco um kind of scanning my uh bookcase for the name. It was, it was Diagnosis Mercury, and I don't remember the name of the doctor, but she had all these cases of these affluent women coming in and having these neurological issues and emotional issues that were 
like neurological things, you know, serious anxiety and depression. And then they were starting to get neuropathies. And these women had very high blood mercury levels. And it turned out it was all, they were rich women going out eating swordfish all the time. And so I get a lot of LA, a lot of San Francisco, and a lot of New York up to Boston people and a lot of Hawaii people with very, very high levels just from the fish consumption. So we talked a little bit about how to get this stuff out of you um, in terms of your recommended treatment approach last time. We talked about uh, some other binders, and I think we touched on Rizomol, but could you kind of outline how you approach getting this stuff out of people safely and how long does it take? Um, so you've noted there that some people suffer from this permanently, like they have permanent damage. Is that kind of like how uh, intense the mercury contamination has been or is it prolongation even if it's lower at a kind of lower level or is it kind of like a combination of the two it's a combination of the two i mean in the imax guy's case he had blood levels of 75 to 100 he might have gone up to 125 at one point and those are radically high levels i mean those are 10 times higher than what I say is high. And actually, in the last year, we've had a handful of cases also with really high levels, but it was elemental mercury exposure or inorganic mercury exposure. But those, those very high levels create the permanent damage. The more chronic levels that most people are exposed to uh, tend to produce chronic problems and they don't tend to be as permanent. Now, you know, there's some things you can't pull yourself out of, but uh, or there'll be some residual damage. But for the most part, for chronic toxicity issues, we can reverse that. And uh, reversing that, the, the core of doing that is turning up the glutathione system. And we'll talk about the three major components of that. And then what could be called the drainage system. Uh, drainage is an old European word for having your kidneys, liver, and GI tract being able to filter your blood. So we need the cells to be able to push the mercury out. Then we need, and they're pushing it out as glutathione complexes, and then those need to get filtered out. And so for the glutathione system to work, there's three main parts. Now we talked, well, let's talk from cell outward. We need glutathione for sure, and we need adequate levels of glutathione. And then we're going to link the glutathione onto the mercury, and we need an enzyme called glutathione S-transferase that catalyzes that linking there. And then we have to transport that out, and that transport is from the cell to the blood, from the blood to the liver or kidney, and then out from there, from the liver, it's going out through the bile tract into the small intestine, and from the kidney, it's going out to the bladder and then uh, out as urine. So when you give someone your liposomal glutathione, I mean, there's, there's many products out there, I understand. We, I think we spoke last time, you've put yours at a specific level. Uh, you could probably re-explain that, but basically you, you give that liposomal glutathione to get the glutathione up. Is it feeding both of those systems you just mentioned, the, the glutathione and the, the glutathione transferase? Is it well, glutathione as transferase is, a, is an enzyme that takes the glutathione in one hand and the mercury in the other hand and links them together. So the glutathione as transferase is a separate thing and it's, uh, it uses glutathione as a substrate. And so the liposomal glutathione is certainly to get the glutathione levels up and provide glutathione to the system to use. The 
glutathione as transferase, we can't provide that directly. We need to turn up the body's ability to make that. And so we use uh, a combination of R-lipoic acid and polyphenolic antioxidants. So there's a trigger in the cytoplasm of the cell that when it is uh, activated goes into the nucleus and turns on a lot of your chemoprotective genes, chemoprotective genes like the glutathionase transferase. And they're called chemoprotective because they're protecting you against chemicals that are coming in or chemicals that you're making inside your body that are bad for you. And this trigger responds to a number of things that are in our diet. And one group are polyphenolic antioxidants like you would get from green tea extract or red wine extract, grapeseed extract, pine bark extract. Or then you have sulfur-containing sulfur chemicals that come dominantly from alliums and crucifers, that being alliums being garlic and onions and leeks, uh, and crucifers being broccoli, cabbage, bok choy, that kind of thing. Then the other sulfur-based chemical that does this and does it really well is lipoic acid and specifically the form called R-lipoic acid. So we use a blend to bring up that enzyme system. We, we use dominantly polyphenols and lipoic acid uh, because of their ability to hit this main trigger. Okay. Yes. And, and I think we touched on before, you use the polyphenols instead of the, the sulfur-based. Yeah. I use them more than uh, like sulforaphane, which would come from broccoli seed extract because the, the mercury toxic patients tend to have a uh, deranged sulfur processing and they over-process sulfur chemicals down towards sulfate and they get held up at sulfite and it gives them some sulfite toxicity. And so the crucifers and, and the alliums uh, seem to irritate that system. So we stick with the polyphenols. They tend to do better for that. And then the one sulfur that we use is the lipoic acid. And I think I mentioned before, it has two functions. One is to bring up this uh, chemoprotective genes. And the other function is that it stimulates mitochondrial biogenesis and improves mitochondrial efficiency. And that's a big problem for anybody who's chronically ill is having enough energy. The mitochondria get very damaged. And the mitochondria get damaged by glutathione, or not by glutathione. Uh, mitochondria get damaged by heavy metals, uh, most specifically mercury, cadmium, and arsenic. So if we can turn up detox and help the mitochondria at the same time, then we've got a great uh, a great compound to use. Right. And to be clear, what you were talking about when you're talking about the chemoprotective genes, you're talking about NRF2? Yeah, NRF2 is, is the uh, protein that's outside of the nucleus and moves into the nucleus and, and turns up all of these. And so that's what we're trying to stimulate. And... Uh, it's a little bit tricky when people are really sick. I mean, sometimes those targets are hard to work with. Uh, I think I'd mentioned before that mold toxins epigenetically downregulate NRF2, meaning that you're not making so much of that trigger. There's not even out there to activate. And so we need to get the mold toxins out. And so we're feeding in glutathione and uh, trying to nurse the system back to health using whatever level of enzymes that we have in there. And this is a big part of titrating up doses is starting low because a lot of these ill people, they're, even if we wanted to hit all those targets once and get the body to tune itself up and 
throw out all these toxins, a lot of these targets are damaged or they're not being expressed right. And so we have to slowly nurse it back to health. Uh, and for the sickest people, you got to go back and you got to be giving them clay foot baths and clay baths and trying to use the skin as much as possible, slowly having them eat small amounts of clay and charcoal and really going through a slow, slow detox that, you know, someone like myself at the point I'm at, I, I could take it a cup of clay internally isn't going to, isn't going to provoke much of a change in me. But uh, for someone who's really ill, even a teaspoon of clay is shaking the tree a lot. So we have to nurse a lot of these things back to health. And that's why you need something like a liposomal glutathione instead of just giving them uh, precursors like uh, cysteine or N-acetylcysteine or whey protein. Great. So you continue to detox yourself from, from oh, mercury. Yeah. Is, is well, that from everything. Okay. So do you think there is, in your personal case, do you think there are stores kind of like I spoke to Gary, Dr. Gary Gordon about lead reserves? Um, and he, he talks about cases of lead where he'll get his patients down to pretty much clear of lead. Uh, they come back two months later and it's 90% back up where it was because it's coming coming out of the bones. And other yeah, stores. And, you know, and he probably exaggerates his numbers a little, but uh, because he likes – but this story is true. I mean, there you've got these bone reserves that are releasing it. And so you do have to come back periodically and go after it. Uh, in mercury, we tend to talk more about proteins because uh, there's less, uh, it doesn't work into the bone structure the way that lead does. And so we talk more about proteins and deep inside the peptides as those turn over, you're getting release from uh, farther in there. And there, there definitely is sort of the available reserves uh, or the available mercury that you can get out now versus what shows itself over time. But we do a pretty slow detox. I mean, people are five months minimum on a detox unless it's just a little cleanup. But the sicker people are doing it as long as two years. But then I really want you to make uh, detox feeding these aspects of detox, the glutathione, the glutathionous transferase, and the binders that we talked so much about last time. I want you to make those part of your life. Uh, not every day, but in pulses. Uh, I mean, now's a great time of year to do a lot of detox. I mean, we're eating super heavy food. I know we have availability to fresh vegetables all the time, but it's not the same as eating in season. And so we eat heavy food and it's the end of the year. and It's like, you know, it's a good time to uh, keep flushing a lot of that junk away. I mean, I see a lot of people get sick this time of year. And if you're keeping yourself clean, that doesn't happen. And then you're getting a lot of, you know, you're going to all these parties, you've got uh, alcohol metabolites building up, and you clear those things out the same way you're clearing out all the other toxins. And so we talk about mercury, but it's really everything. But then back, and because that same system, we're we're tuning up a system that throws all the junk out. It's not just the mercury. But then back to the mercury, the brain takes so, so long to detoxify. And I, I spent a lot of time last year. I mean, I really started my mercury detox back in like 2008 and, and figured it out, uh, maybe 2007 even, because uh, I was really drove myself the wrong way using DMSA and then figured out this whole system to pull me out of it. And then sort of 2009 started getting it out to the world and so i've really been doing this for seven years uh and there's always more improvement to be found and especially neurologically uh and 
this last year, I was doing a lot specifically for the brain. And I'm aging and, you know, I'm in my mid 40s and you really do slow down a lot. But on a lot of levels, I'm uh, healthier than I've been since I moved out here and started this company in 2005. So you can just keep peeling off layers and bringing yourself to higher and higher levels. That's great to hear. So you said you pulse, like to take you as an example, how, how, how often are you pulsing? So your glutathione or the alpha lipoic acid and stuff, are you taking that once per week? And are you taking the binders daily or are you, what, what are you doing uh, in your own personal you life? Know, I, I'm probably not as systematic as I should be for yeah. a scientist. I do it as, <laughs> I do it more as needed. So as in November, uh, <laughs> in November, I, I had four weeks in a row where I had a conference to go to every week. So I was on the road Thursday through Sunday, four weeks in a row, including the last one was to Europe. And then I came back here and there was a health crisis in my family. And then I had one more show after that. So I was really under the gun and I was using a lot of products then. And I was using, uh, at night, I used a lot of GABA and glutathione to let me recharge, let me sleep deep and recharge. I used a lot of C. lipoic during the day to just keep everything flushing through. And so I was kind of on a, a long sort of support and detox while I was going through all that. Other times, uh, maybe I'll take less. And then I'll think, okay, it's time to start using IMD for a while, and I'll take IMD every day, and I might take a little EDTA with that and some glutathione, and I'll do that every day for two weeks, and then I'll just, or maybe 10 days, and then I'll lay off of it for a while. The things I take the most constantly are the C-lipoic and the glutathione. I have a lot of SNPs for glutathione, genes and for superoxide dismutase genes, a couple of methylation things. And so those having those pretty consistently has been real good for me. Great. When you say C-lipoic acid, is, is that helping the sod or how are you supporting the sod? Well, the, the sod, I don't know how to directly activate sod other than through NRF2. And so, so the lipoic acid should be bringing up sod expression, but then making sure that the rest of, you know, the antioxidant system is vastly interconnected with all kinds of antioxidants playing into these interweaving circles. And so if I supply enough glutathione and vitamin C, the sod, you know, it, it sort of has some of the weight taken off of it. So the, the important thing you, I mean, you bring up there is the pulse approach. And I've started to hear about this more um, from people where basically we're talking about the organism, as you were just saying, is very dynamic, right? We've got lots of linkages right. between different parts of our body and our body also tends to try and um, adapt to things and like there's regulation. Habituating to it. Right, right. So, I mean, if we're taking glutathione every single day, eventually is that going to start working against us? And people are talking about this pulse approach to... Yeah, it's a great thing to talk about and I teach a lot on that and because it's so huge. And its biggest with therapies that are based on activating certain gene sets. And the coolest data set I have on that was using St. John's wort and looking at phase two and phase three detox enzymes. And they found two things. One is that you don't upregulate at low doses, uh, only at really fairly substantial doses. 
And the other big thing was how long you could do it. And so they had these mice on this high dose of St. John's wort, and they were watching the upregulation of these enzymes, and they saw it climb from 100%, which was the baseline, up to 300% of baseline over 10 days. So threefold increase in expression. That's pretty good. And then over the next 20 days, as they continued to take that dose, it dove down to where at day 30, it was no different than day one. The total habituation to this input. And they probably started tearing apart the input before it would activate those genes. And so we start people pulsing five days on, two days off, and then we move them up to 10 days on, four days off. And in doing our detox based on glutathione system upregulation, it is crucial to do this. It is less crucial down the road in your maintenance phases where you're just sort of making sure all these inputs are in there. That's why I'm sort of not, you know, I'm not as methodical as I used to be about it because, you know, everything's working pretty well for me. But when you are trying to get yourself better, that's really crucial because otherwise you're taking something, you know, these most plant compounds that we take are activating genes. And you, I love to use Chinese medicine as the quintessential early example of how to do pulsing. When you go, I don't know if you've ever gone in your journey to a real authentic Chinese doctor who will diagnose you, then he'll take you into his apothecary and he'll pull out drawers of herbs, dried herbs. He'll put out a big piece of paper and you'll start putting all the herbs together on there till there's a pile, (laughs) a big pile of herbs on there. And you're supposed to cook that down to a little cup of tea over like two hours and drink that and then fill it up with water and cook it down to another cup and then throw it out and do it again. So you're getting high doses and you're only doing that for five to seven days. And that's upregulation of gene sets. I know that we'll find that out, that that's what they're doing. And there's even some, I have data papers where they're showing upregulation of NRF2 through using Chinese herbs. And we'll start finding all kinds of other gene sets that, that we're upregulating. The most exciting stuff is reversing epigenetic hypermethylation of genes. It's turning genes off and there's starting to be data sets coming out with that. So really that's the most exciting stuff that I'm doing right now and that I'm really going to focus on in 2015 is new products that we release that are going to take away the epigenetic block from the mold so that we can access those gene targets more effectively. I can't wait for that to come out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been it's pretty exciting stuff. And yeah. so sort of uh, March, we're going to start releasing that. Great, great. I'll keep in touch uh, for that because that's probably something I want to be using myself. Yeah, no, I want to get you on that. Yeah, if I, maybe we can get you on it ahead of the game. Yeah, that would be cool. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, so I love this puzzle approach because it, it kind of comes back to hormesis, right? Because a lot of these... The it way, is. Yeah. The, all these things are hormetic. Right. They're toxins. I mean, uh, all the polyphenols come at you as polymers of different monomers. And like a monomer, like epicatechin, if you bought it as a pure monomer and put a cell culture in it, it'll kill the cells. And as the polymers, it's just less damaging. And those targets, the NRF2, the way it turns on the NRF2 is actually by creating free radicals. It creates little free radical reactions, and they're just not that damaging, but they're enough to turn on the NRF2. The sulfur compounds are better at doing it, like sulforaphane, but they're more cytotoxic too. 
because it's generating a little free radical storm. And so all these things are hormetic, and you want the most upregulation with the least challenge to the system. Yeah. And but you know, make no mistake about it, they are all hormetic, and so they all should be pulsed. And uh, sort of my window is 10 days is your optimum, and you can do less than that uh, if you don't want to challenge the system as much. But anything beyond 20 is a waste. Yeah. And that's something that you said you were going to be looking more at antioxidant markers uh, and oxidative stress markers related to that to see the downstream effect. Oh, uh, actually, that was related to the liposomal glutathione oh, okay. study going on right now, looking at. Uh, Free radical gene damage, that's 8-deoxyguanosine, and uh, free radical damage to lipids, that's F2-isoprostanes, and then oxidation of LDL cholesterol. And so uh, right now, we're looking at the liposomal glutathione for mitigating those damages. That we're doing because it's hard to measure glutathione in blood because there's a big background already. And so uh, a lot of this stuff transports and gets places and gets used up really quick. Some stuff's easy. The B12 was easy. Uh, doing clinicals on EDTA was based on lead excretion, but glutathione's a little tricky. So we're going to base that on damage. But I'm trying to work with, uh, it's not like she's being difficult. I haven't called her yet, but Cheryl Burdett uh, <laughs> about, <laughs> that's just me being slow. Right, getting right. To it. But actually, uh, actually, I've been in touch with her recently and they're just rejigging their labs. Because I, I was going to get them done, so I think, but it's just in a new year. Um, yeah, so she's, so I'll, I'll get with against, her yeah. and contract to do a certain number of analyses there, and because I do want to look more on the hormetic side of bringing down these markers. You know, how do these different polyphenols and and nutraceuticals turn up those protective mechanisms? First one we do is the glutathione. That's already uh, starting right now. But uh, we'll we'll do more more work that way. We'll probably do it with Cheryl. Cool. And you're going to be able to compare because your liposomal glutathione is different to others. Will you be able to compare the difference? Is that uh, it just of... depends whether I want to pay a lot of money uh, to measure somebody else's product because getting getting clinicals done costs uh, two to three thousand dollars per person. It's really right. expensive. and how many people do you need to make it reasonable? Uh, well, you know, you need at least ten to get some pilot data going, and so there you're looking at thirty thousand dollars just to get some some data that validates what you've been seeing for years. And so it's not the kind of thing that I want to say, here's us compared to three other brands, you know, right. at least until people start buying more and then, then we'll go after that. Okay. Well, I wanted to round off with just some, giving some people some ideas of recovery in terms of treatment. What kind of timelines do you see? Uh, so you've mentioned a lot about like basically the healing crises, right? Um, so you have to go slow with many of them because if you try to go too fast, it gets too problematic with uh, de detox symptoms. So what kind of timelines do you see? I mean, some people get better in a week and some people take like, two years or, you know, what kind of different variations? Do you yeah, see? I mean, it, it is real variable. So maybe if we talk about some basic uh, types of people. Yeah. All right. The most, the sort of textbook example of the detox is you, you get into it, uh, you're doing, you're starting five days on, two days off. In your first month, the first week, you're a little tired towards the end of your first 
five days and you know you're just a little bit pushed down and then your days off you you get your energy back and then the next week you're pushed down but not as far and you you bounce back in your days off by the fourth week at that dosing level you don't notice it at all then the next month you jump up to a higher dosing and you go through the same thing first week the first couple the end of the first week is a little hard and then it gets easier and so you're going through that process with feeling it and over that first three months, you're noticing overall your daily energy is getting stronger. Some of the aches and pains in your joints are going away. Your skin is clearing up. Uh, maybe your hormones are normalizing. And uh, you go through the first three-month pack, and then you move into the two-month pack, and you get even more results. And uh, so three-month minimum to sort of clear yourself up five-month more average, uh, but then you have other types of people. So uh, there's one guy here uh, who's working for us who's got some neuropathy in his leg, and uh, in about the third month, his neuropathy started getting better, and, uh, and you could see a lot of changes in him. His skin color was getting better. His energy through the day was better because the first month he said, you know, is it normal for me to be tired? I'm like, yeah, it is. And and he was going through a little bit of a, you know, he was feeling it, but now now he's reaping the rewards and he's in about month three. Mm. Is there any way to completely avoid the the negative symptoms? Mm, if you go really, yeah, really if you, slow. Or? You really don't have anything wrong with you and you're just <laughs> doing it protectively. But these are all pretty minimal symptoms. You know, you're a little tired. Uh I mean it's just you're gonna go through some of this. Now if you go really, really low and slow, you may not. The more intensely you try to do it, the shorter amount of time, the more symptoms you're going to have. The more you spread it out, the less symptoms you're going to have, but the longer it's going to take. But also, if you don't get to higher doses, you're not going to have the more profound changes occur. So there's a little bit of a mix there. Now, on the harder end, you get to these people that you're at the low dosing and you're in the first week and they're just exhausted and you have to back off to half dosing or even to quarter dosing. These people are going to take a year to go through this. And we used to back them off to drainage remedies, which are homeopathic or herbal remedies to sort of start the movement of the lymphatics and get the kidneys and the liver gently working again. And we still have those tools and we still use them with good effect but people who run into a wall and really can't get past, they can't get up in their dosing, almost always have a chronic infection. And I think I mentioned before, quite often they come into this thinking that they had Lyme, but their Lyme test was negative and they get two, three weeks into the detox and they're exhausted. And then they go and retest for Lyme. And they're more exhausted than they were when they started. And then they go back and they retest for Lyme and it comes in positive. Because as you reboot the glutathione system and you get your glutathione levels back up, your immune system turns back on. You get more of that TH1 response to the infection. And those are the things that make you feel infection. They make you feel crappy. And so then they know that they've got Lyme or Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus or uh, toxoplasma. And then they can go and treat those. And once they get a little bit of that knocked back 
and they got farther in their antimicrobial treatment since it's a lot easier to get in to our detox. So we pretty much found that if the detox isn't working for you, there's an infectious problem. And if it didn't test for you before, it will now. So once you deal with that problem or start getting that under control, then you can get back into your detox and go farther with that. So it's kind of good news, bad news. You know, bad news is you weren't able to detox. The good news is that at least we know now what was one of the other underlying problems with you and, and uh, we can treat that out and get you moving forward. Right, right. And as you've mentioned before, it's like peeling layers of an onion. A lot of these chronic conditions tend to be you find one thing, you solve that, you feel a bit better. You, you find another thing and you kind of work your way through the maze. Yeah, but as you get through those layers, you get more and more powerful. You know, your strength comes back and you go through each level much faster and your improvements are greater each time. And it's really important for the chronically ill person to gauge where they've been and how far they've gotten because especially the real ambitious ones, you know, and a lot of these ones that are poor methylators and have gotten really chronically ill are incredibly ambitious and aren't good at measuring their progress. And you often need family members or people who know them to remind them how far they've come. Yeah. I mean, I certainly can uh, reflect back on that myself. I'm one of these ambitious ones. Yeah. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I have a ton of data as well. I can go, ah, oh, this is definitely very different. But there have been some points along the journey. I was like, I don't know if I'm getting anywhere with all of this stuff, but I clearly had. Yeah, because we habituate to wherever we're at. <laughs> and, you know, we accommodate feeling absolutely horrible. And then when we're up to kind of bad, it still feels the same. And uh, and we're, all we want is to be all the way back. Right, exactly. That's all I can talk about. 100%. I want to be 110%. Yeah, yeah I want exactly. payback pay for the time I was under 100%. Um, That's it. Right. So to learn more about the biomarkers we've been talking about today and some of some of the products you've been talking about where do you have like research on your site or is there other places books uh, you'd recommend to learn more details and, and more about this the research and stuff well start with our website quicksilverscientific.com we just put up a new website and we're kind of populating it now there's a fair amount of material under mercury and heavy metal testing on uh, understand there's videos there of me describing our testing and showing a lot of different examples of it. Under the products, there are a number of product pages about uh, many of our different products. Some are just available by Dr. Login. And there is some, some basic information on the detox system and how that's supposed to work. I'm still just starting to populate articles into uh, the science section so you can read more about what this is all based on. This is all coming from basic research that's being done around the world and I've been funneling it all down into a usable system. And so I'm, I'm sort of still getting to where I uh, have time to publish all of this. So anything that I put up there will be pretty, you know, it's only for the connoisseurs. It's not for the, for, uh, it'll take some wading through of, of the scientific material. It's pretty technical, there. you're saying? It is pretty technical. And I'm trying to get to where I've got some personal time to write some of this stuff up in some of the progressive medical articles, the integrated medical articles, uh, journals. And so that'll come over the next year or so. Great, great to hear. 
Is there anyone besides yourself that you'd recommend to talk to about this area, like uh, Mercury, um, the kind of systems you've been talking about, or people that you respect that you've kind of learned from? Good question. No, there is only me. That's all there is. You know, Boyd Haley's always been been good on this. He's pursuing a chelator that he's developing now, and so most of the things that he talks about are in support of uh, why everybody needs his chelator. Uh, but he's got a lot of stuff in there over time. But this really, all this emphasis on fixing the biochemistry inside the body to be able to resist the load. This is really new. All, all the language before has really been how to use a chelator to get this stuff out of the body, not how the body naturally chelates it and how we turn that back up. And so I am kind of, I'm, I'm at the forefront there and uh, I'm the only guy really talking a lot about how all that works. But functional medicine is expanding at a rapid rate and there's really good work being done there. Uh, it tends to be mostly in the doctor world. Cheryl Burdett and I lectured at Metabolic Maintenance Institute, which is a doctor training institute where we both have uh, faculty appointments to George Washington University now. And it's real high end and the material being lectured on there was all awesome. But it's really just going to the doctors now, and well, that's, it's not that's great really to hear that you're getting. I mean, you're getting the information out there now. So, how many is it? Big classes of fifty people, or I don't remember what the. I think this was like the first one they did at of this particular segment. I think there was thirty doctors there, and and there'll be more as we go. But it was very intensive lecturing. It was just all day. There's all this really high level stuff coming from different angles. And all the faculty there was top notch. Uh, Jim Laval uh, as part of that, Andrew Heyman, Russ Jaffe, all their stuff was really, really high level. And so, and now it needs to focus, it needs to funnel down into books too. And uh, you know, people ask me all the time, I, I told people I'd write a book in 2015. I don't know how empty of a promise that's going to be, but, uh, but we'll see. Uh, yeah, it sounds like I mean, you I, could write the book. Mercury book. Yeah, I definitely could write the book now. It's just a question of the, the time to write it. So maybe it'll be 2016, but I'm going to have to come through with that. <laughs> and, and I'll have more materials on our website. But it, there is so all by way of saying, I don't know who to, to point you to. It's all coming together up at the highest levels of training the doctors and PhDs and MDs lecturing and doing research up there. And it just needs to uh, funnel its way down. Well, now just a, a couple of questions about you and, and what you're doing in terms of your own personal stuff. Uh, what data metrics do you track for your own body on a routine basis, if any? I don't do a whole lot of testing all the time. I do some standard stuff every couple of months, you know, complete blood counts and metabolic panels, GGT and liver enzymes and uh, lipid panels, hormone panels. All sort of standard stuff that like an anti-aging doctor would do and I make sure that you know my hormones are are well balanced and that all my chemistry is clean. Uh, but even though I play the PhD on TV, I do a I'll do a fair amount of energetic testing on myself just to to see what supplements are best for me 
and what organ systems might be going out of whack before anything clinical happens. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to learn a lot of good systems from people, and uh, they work well on monitoring myself. And so I'll use them to sort of gauge what supplements I'm going to focus on at any one time. Great. So what exact energetic systems are you talking about here? Can you give us an example? Yeah, let's see. There's uh, one called a Lecker antenna, which is sort of uh, uh, sort of a dowsing technique that I use. Uh, I use a lot of muscle testing combined with organ points, which are essentially acupuncture points. And there was a there was a system uh, SGOT, uh, AKSGOT. They started doing it. They defined all these muscle testing points for different reflex points in your body that are supposed to correspond to different organ systems. So like a, uh, a liver, gallbladder, kidney, small intestine, large intestine, uh, brain points. And so I'll use those. Uh, there was a guy named Bob Walker who taught me more about those. Uh, his system was called chirodontics. I lectured a lot with uh, Klinghart and I learned his system. Uh, and so between all those, I came to something that works for me, but it's mostly by and large, muscle testing, uh, acupuncture points, and looking for disturbance along those, and then what normalizes those. And that's actually worked out uh, exceptionally well for me, and I, I do th- use that with uh, other people as well. I tend to get mostly doctors that come, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD, I don't treat patients, but I treat a lot of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> Also, it's very interesting that you're using this, and I guess you're using that in areas where testing is not available or it's too expensive. and so. Yeah, or, or testing only sees gross changes. And so it's a combination of all of those. Do, do I want to draw some blood now? Do I want to pay for this test? Does this test actually show me what I'm looking for, or does it only show up on the test once it's gone pretty far? And so I think once you've learned the biochemistry and you have that all under wraps, then if you have some energetic testing to guide you, that's when you really shine because you're left with, uh, you know, a ton of different products that theoretically could do what you want them to. How do you work through what the best one for you is or the, the best one that's out there on the market right now? And there you're stuck with energy medicine to figure that out. And when it's done right, it's uh, quite good. Great. What is the one biggest insight that you've taken about your biology that's maybe had the biggest impact that you know, you've drawn to date over time? The one thing you, ah, my personal biology is like this because of something you tracked or, or... Oh, yeah. The craziest thing that I figured out in the last year was in the holistic dental world, they talk about connections between uh, what are called cavitations. Like the most simple cavitation would be where you pulled a wisdom tooth out and they leave this thing called the periodontal ligament in there and it rots over time. So I had a cavitation in my lower back right molar where, where it used to be a wisdom tooth and it was enough that you could see it on an iCAT. And I wanted to figure out a way to get that better without digging in there with uh, going in surgically and cleaning it all out. And I tried ozone therapy and I tried a lot of different things. And it was, it 
was giving me chronic GI issues, like where I had to work on them constantly. And, you know, they say it's on one of the meridians that goes down to your GI system and controls your GI system and your spleen. And it was always, I mean, I was just working on my GI system all the time. And I get ozone injected in there and it would be better for a couple of days and it would go back. And everybody using, at least using energy testing because nobody dug in there to do a biopsy or anything. And uh, everybody said that it was a fungus that was in my GI tract and in there. And uh, if you recall when I was talking about epigenetic changes from funguses, funguses have this ability to turn down a lot of your repair and defense systems. And one of the products that I have for reversing that is uh, a nanoparticle of dim. And I started using that, holding it over my cavitation, and it changed everything in, with a matter of a couple of days. Wow. And I did that, I don't know, three, four months ago. I started doing that, and it reversed all my GI issues. And people muscle test me on that cavitation, and it tests strong now. And now I just, I think if I keep keep that therapy on for a year, I'm going to do another uh, ICAT on it and see if the hole's closed up at, at all. Because my dentist had said right before I started doing this, he did ozone and he said that hole, like I put that needle in without drilling, you know, that you're going to have to work on that. And then I started doing the dim and he was blown away. He's like, I can't believe that. So we'll see. Uh, but I mean, it was really, you know, I'm around holistic dentistry all the time and they talk about these systemic problems that come from the dental area. And this was mine and I reversed it this way and I haven't had a problem since. And just whenever you see that uh, happen, it's just like, wow, man, this, this really is what's going on with a lot of people. Right, right. That's great. I'd never actually heard of the, the cavitation and how it can rot and cause you know, problems in, your, in the gum bacteria and the infection. I mean, just last week, I was talking to a surgeon about removing my wisdom teeth, and he takes a biological approach where he clears it all out. Um, yeah. And I guess most dentists don't even look at that, right? They just leave it. No, they leave that little tip in there, the periodontal ligament, and they assume that the body's going to repair after that, and it does not always do that. In fact, most of the time it doesn't. And if they had gone in farther and dug it out more, it would have been okay. And so you get this little pocket of rot and what they do usually to treat it is they go in and they scoop that stuff out. And I've seen like videos of this and it's like pus and rot and it's, they say it stinks and, and they have to grind down to new bone and, and with burrs and scar and, and scrape up the new bone and that stimulates it to come in and grow back. And even then, it doesn't always work, but at least they, they've got a, that does stimulate a regrowth. Wow. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up. And yet no, again, those are big. Well, Chris, thank you so much for all this information, you know, detail. It's, it's all, this, all this new stuff, as you were saying, that's like a biochemical approach to um, healing these kinds of heavy metal issues beyond chelation, which I hadn't heard, heard before. Um, and I wasn't aware we were going to get so deep into this when we started this whole little journey in the, in the yeah. first part of the interview. So, you know, thank you so much for all the information. And oh, you're it's welcome. been a pleasure talking and, and, to you. You know, maybe to just tie it all together that that with the biochemical approach, you're not only getting rid of the metal, but you're 
increasing your resistance to it. And so in I talk about these three things you need, the glutathione, the transferase, and the transport proteins. And then I found a biochemistry paper. It was a cell culture paper where they were finding cells. They had a big population of cells that they mutated to have different properties. And they found one that was resistant to metals. And they found that it had these three things. And if they knocked out any one of those, it stopped being resistant. And so there, by ensuring that the biochemistry of the cell works properly, that load of metal that's in that Petri dish does not affect the cell. But when the cell biochemistry does not work properly, that same load now becomes toxic. And so I want to get people away from thinking, well, if I strip out the metals, there'll be no issue. Get your body to resist the metals and it will strip them out at the same time. Sometimes you got to go in with a chelator. Lead, I think, does need some EDTA. But if you first fix the underlying system, you're going to get vastly superior results. Right. And as you say, like to stay healthy, to yeah, keep this stuff at exactly. bay that you really yeah, want. Yeah, as opposed to waiting until that metal load gets high enough again to knock you out, you know, running well. Like I said, you know, if you, if you can't deal with our detox, it's probably because you got Lyme. And now all of a sudden you see, because we, now we turned up your immune system and you're reacting to the Lyme. Now go fight the Lyme. Yep. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Chris. All right. Thank you very much, Damien. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website, verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.